today we're going to do something a little bit different with our message. We're going to go through a whole book of the Bible in one message. So that's going to be great. And uh, I thought about asking Ruth to read the whole book of John as preparation for this, but I went the other extreme and just had a couple of verses uh, because we are going to unpack a lot of verses as we go through the message today. The reason why we're doing this is because through the season of Lent, the season leading up to Easter, uh, we had a Lenten reading plan that was available. And so hopefully some of you took the opportunity to be able to do that. And uh, I think these sorts of things are really great because it's an opportunity for us to read all of one book at a time, which is something that we don't necessarily do depending on the sorts of devotionals that we use. And so it's really good to be able to see the way that it all fits together. Um, But it's also really challenging to do something like that, especially a book that is fairly meaty like John and a little bit longer, uh, something that takes us a little while to do. But there's a lot of research that says if we do something for 30 days in a row, it generally becomes more of a habit for us. And so I hope that as we've been through Lent, for those who have participated in the reading plan, it's been a really good way of being able to either form some new habits if scripture reading isn't something we've done a lot, uh, or for those of us who'd kind of fallen out of the habit of it, that it might be something that's been really helpful to get back into the habit too. So the book of John is written, most people would agree, by a guy named John. Yes, that's right, you guessed it. Although some people would speculate that's not actually true. There is a school of thought that the book of John was written by Lazarus if you would believe that. Uh, But most people would agree that John was the guy who wrote it. The reason why there's speculation is because he doesn't actually identify himself or herself, whoever wrote this book, uh, because they identify themselves simply as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I think is really, really amazing and powerful. It's a beautiful way to say, I don't actually need to name myself. All I need to know is that I'm the one that Jesus loves. And so here's some information for you. We do know the purpose behind John writing this book, though. He says towards the end uh, in John chapter 20, In his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many miracles which are not written down in this book. But these, the ones that have been written down, have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him you may have life. And so John unapologetically says, the whole reason why I've written this stuff down is so that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the one who's come to set us right with God. And so that through that, you can experience life in all of its fullness. So I'll be really honest. John is one of my favorite books. And it's also one of the most complicated books in all of the Bible. Once upon a time, I used to recommend John as a great starting point for people who'd never read the Bible before. Uh, But at some point, I then went back and reread through the whole book of John. And I was like, this is a terrible place to start if you've never read the Bible, because there's a lot of real significant complexity in it. And so now I generally recommend that people read Mark instead. There's a couple of quotes that I found as I was preparing for uh, the message today that help us to understand a bit of this. One person wrote that the book of John is like a pool in which a child may swim and an, uh, may wade, sorry, and an elephant can swim. Like a pool in which a child may wade, because it's nice and simple in lots of ways, and an elephant may swim because it's really, really complicated. Someone else said that the prologue, so this is just the start of John, the prologue of John is like standing in the foothills of an awesome mountain range, catching a breathtaking glimpse of the massive snow-capped peaks reaching up 
through the haze. And I would say that the more that you get into the book of John, the more amazing that mountain range becomes. And when I read that, I was reminded of when we had the opportunity to go to Whistler and uh, we were driving along. That's a picture of it. That's actually a picture from halfway up Whistler. And so what blew my mind when we went there is that we're halfway up this enormous mountain looking out at this incredible view. But then you turn around behind you and know that the mountain goes up that far again. And it really blew my mind, especially to know that we were already above a layer of cloud, but there was another layer of cloud that was above that. And so that's a bit like the book of John. You can kind of stand back and look at this awesome view, see this amazing mountain range and say, wow, that's really beautiful. But when you start to think about the implications of how big it is and how astounding it is and all of the peaks and everything that's a part of it, it makes you even more in awe of it. So the book of John contains some of probably the most well-known books, uh, verses in the Bible. John 3.16, if people don't know the verse, they would at least know that reference as one of the key verses in all of Scripture. We read it just before. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. John 8 verse 32 says, You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So there's lots of people who would know that phrase, the truth will set you free. They may or may not be aware that that comes from Jesus in John chapter 8. John 10.10, I have come in order that you might have life, life in all its fullness. The shortest verse in the whole Bible is in John as well. Jesus wept, which is John 11 verse 35. In John 13, Jesus says, And now I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, are these verses that we regularly read when we gather together to celebrate someone's life at a funeral, where we have Jesus saying, Don't let your hearts be troubled, because in my Father's house, as we've just been singing, there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. John 14, 6, again, probably one of the most well-known verses of Scripture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except by me. So all of these amazing verses that we know come from John. And then a couple of probably the most well-known miracles of Jesus also occurred just in the book of John. Jesus turning water into wine happens in John chapter 2. And Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead happens in John chapter 11. And again, even for people who haven't necessarily grown up in the church, they would generally know the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine and Lazarus coming back from the dead. So there's all of this stuff that we're really, really familiar with. All of these verses that are so meaningful to us, and a lot of them, when you take them at face value, that are really, really simple. But there's all this massive complexity in John as well. And I'm going to read you a couple of verses from John chapter 6. And as I do, I want you to imagine that you've never stepped foot inside a church before and you've never heard anything about Jesus before. And this is the first time that you are reading this. And again, this is part of the reason why I've stopped encouraging people to read this as the first verses that they read. So try and just take this at face value. Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. If you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You will not have life in yourselves. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I'll raise them to life on the last day. For my flesh is the real food, and my blood is the real drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me, and I live in them. 
Now, we know that that's all referring symbolically to what Jesus talked about with communion. But if you don't know anything about Jesus and you've never read the Bible before, this is cannibalism. And in actual fact, that's one of the things that the early church was accused of because there was all these rumours about how these people would get together and they would eat the flesh of this dead guy and they would drink his blood and they would do that so that somehow they'd then be able to live forever. That was one of the rumours about the early church. A lot of people were like, oh, these guys are freaks. This is a cult that started up. And we know that in some streams of the church, they genuinely believe that when they gather around communion and the words that they use mean that the bread and the juice or the bread and the wine or the wafers and the wine are literally transformed into Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. And this is a part of the reason for that because they feel like we're supposed to actually eat Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. That's what he told us that we needed to do. So there's some things that Jesus says like that that are very, very complicated. The book of John is also a big part of the reason why we have this very deep, complex theology, which is called the Trinity, the understanding that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that even though God is three, God is one. And we get this weird understanding from Jesus that he says that he and the Father are one, and that somehow the Holy Spirit is also one with them. And yet at the same time, there's this confusion that kicks in because Jesus says point blank, unless I go, the Holy Spirit can't come. So doesn't that actually mean that the Holy Spirit is just kind of like the spiritual form of Jesus because he had to leave in order for us to get it? It's really, really complicated. The Trinity is really important to us because it helps us to understand the unity of God and the fact that love is what helps God to stay as one. But it's very, very complicated, and John doesn't help us with some of the things that he says. To make that even more complex, though, as we're going to unpack shortly, Jesus also talks about how we are one with the Father just as much as he is one with the Father. So not only do we have this complex understanding of the Trinity, we have this complex understanding that somehow we have all been swept up into the triune nature of God as well. We're included in this understanding of the unity and the love of God. And Jesus goes even further and says that in actual fact, for those of us who follow Jesus, we're supposed to be that united with each other. That same sense of unity that is a part of the Trinity is what our experience should be as we journey together as spiritual family. So it's really, really complex. Hence the understanding that it's really simple in some ways, but there's some really hard things throughout it. So as I took the time to read through John, through Lent, one of the key themes that I realised emerged, because Jesus talks about it a lot, is this idea of him being sent by the Father and only doing what the Father does. And so in your teaching notes that are inside of Care and Connection, you have a lot of references that I encourage you to go back and look up, especially if you didn't read through John uh, through Lent. Because Jesus over and over and over and over again comes back to this idea of saying, I only do what the Father has sent me to do. Everything that I'm about is simply doing what the Father has given me to do. And as I've read through that, I've been really challenged again about whether that's what my focus is. For Jesus, every day was simply about this. Get up and say, God, what are you up to today? And what do you want me to do to be a part of that work? End of story. That was his whole focus and then living out of the obedience that comes from that. So I've been challenged again about what it looks like for me to get up every day and say, God, what are you up to? 
And what do you want me to do as a part of the work that you're doing in obedience? Jesus also says, and this is one of the key things that's unpacked more in John than just about anywhere else, that when we see him, we see the Father. It's a key theme that's weaved through and it's a big part of what got Jesus into trouble is that he said so much, I am so united with the Father, I am so much about what the Father is on about, that I and the Father am one. And so that's why, particularly the religious leaders, were like, um, you're saying you're God? That's not okay with us. That's a part of what led to the cross. But for us, it's really, really important and helpful because it helps us to understand that when we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. Jesus is crystal clear about that. When we look at the life of Jesus, when we listen to the teaching of Jesus, when we see the things that Jesus was passionate about, the way that Jesus interacted with people, we see what God is like in human form. And so any time that we're a bit confused or a bit struggling with what's God like, that's why it's so important for us to go back to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see what God is like 100%. Another theme that weaves all the way through as you read the book of John is this theme of unity. Jesus talks, especially towards the end of his life, about the importance of us having the same level of unity that he has with the Father. And that that unity comes from God's love for us and us extending that love to each other. Jesus says in John chapter 15, some verses that are familiar to us, I love you. Just as the Father loves me, so remain in my love. My commandment is this, love one another just as I have loved you. This then is what I command you, love one another. Jesus' instructions to his disciples were really, really clear and really simple. Understand that you are loved the same way as the Father loves me, which is mind-blowing when you stop and think about it. The way that the Father loves the Son The way that God loves Jesus is the way that Jesus loved his disciples and loves each one of us. And so his instructions to us are, so go and share that love with the people around you. That's what following me is all about. But out of that is supposed to come this amazing unity. And on the night before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed this for his disciples, which includes all of us. I pray that they may all be one. Father, may they be in us just as you are in me and I'm in you. May they be one so that the world will believe that you sent me. I gave them the same glory that you gave me so that they may be one just as you and I are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be completely one in order that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them as you love me. Jesus again, makes it very clear to his disciples that this distinguishing factor of choosing to share the love of God with each other and with those around us is the key thing that's going to help people to understand who he is and why he came. That's the distinguishing factor for us who call ourselves Christ followers, who call ourselves Christians, is that we love each other the way that we have been loved. And then the other thing that's really important that weaves throughout the book of John, again, particularly towards the second half of it, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus in John chapter 14 and then in John chapter 16. 
talks about how this helper is going to come to be with us. In John 14, 16 and 17, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He's the spirit who reveals the truth about God. The world cannot receive him because it cannot see him or know him. But you know him because he remains with you and is in you. And so Jesus says a part of how you're going to experience this love and a part of how you're going to live out this unity is because I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to help you to understand truth in new and deeper ways. The Holy Spirit is going to encourage you, is going to give you strength when you need it, and is going to be the one who helps you to experience this amazing love. So there's some of the key themes that we see weaved throughout John. But one of the other reasons why John is such an important book is because Jesus makes these very profound statements about who he is to help us understand exactly what he came to do. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, as one of the key pictures, key metaphors for us to be able to help us understand what he came for. This comes straight after Jesus has just fed thousands and thousands of people with bread. And so you can imagine them all sitting around with nice full bellies, feeling satisfied, just eating some really good bread together. And then Jesus says, as much as you crave that, and as much as you feel satisfied now that you're full because of that bread, I'm the bread of life. So crave me even more than you crave bread. Allow me to satisfy you and fill you up in a way that bread never can. Jesus is also in this referring back to the Old Testament when the Israelites were lost in the desert. And they had this miraculous bread that would fall from heaven that was called manna. And every day there would be enough for them to be able to eat. And so Jesus is also referring back to that and reminding the people, I'm here to provide for your daily needs. So crave me, allow me to satisfy you day in and day out. I am the bread of life. Jesus also says that he is the light of the world. And this is imagery that again is weaved all the way through the book of John, the difference between living in the light and living in the darkness. And we know that when we're in the darkness, it's a scary place. Being in the darkness means that we can't see the way forward. We can't see what's ahead of us. It's a place where we can feel a little bit scared at times. It's a place where we can imagine all sorts of different things in front of us that may or may not be real. And the minute that we turn the light on, all of that goes away. As soon as the light comes on, we can see the way forward. We can see things as they're supposed to be. We can see things accurately. And so Jesus says, I've come to be the light of the world, the one who takes away the darkness, the fear, the unknown, all of those things that you imagine. And I've come to show you the way that things are, to help you see accurately, to be able to help you see the way forward. That's why I've come. I'm the light of the world. Jesus then spent some time talking about how he's the gate for the sheep. And so this imagery is about the idea of a sheep pen. So we know that when sheep come into a sheep pen, it's a place of safety. It's a place where they know that they're going to be looked after. It's a place, effectively, that's home for them, where they can just relax and say, okay, this is the place to be. And Jesus says, I want to give you that same experience, but I'm the gate. I'm the one that you need to go through in order to be able to experience that sense of home to be able to experience that sense of protection and that sense of safety. We'll come back and talk about that a little bit more. Jesus then follows on very quickly by talking about how he's the good shepherd. 
And in Jesus' day, a shepherd was one who cared significantly for their sheep. Jesus talks about how shepherds, sheep would get to know their shepherd's voice and they would know that they could trust the shepherd to lead them into places that were safety. They knew that they could trust in their shepherd, protecting them, looking after them, feeding them, keeping them away from danger. And so Jesus says, I've come to be the good shepherd for you in the same way, to look after you, to help you to learn to trust my voice, to learn how to listen to me and know that I'm not going to lead you anywhere dangerous. I'm going to lead you where you need to go. Jesus then says that he's the resurrection and the life. And this is a really interesting one because Jesus doesn't say that he is resurrected. He says he is the resurrection. And that's what we focused on last week. Because Jesus has come back from the dead, because Jesus is alive today, we now have the opportunity to live eternal life. But Jesus wasn't just talking about the life that we get to experience when we cross from this life into the next. We actually get to experience that resurrection, victorious life now, in the here and now, in the way that we live our lives. Jesus then says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. As I said, John 14.6 is one of the key verses that a lot of people would know. And it's a part of the reason why it's so well known is because a lot of people would use this as a reason why they've turned their backs on Christianity because they see this as a very exclusive verse where Jesus is saying, it's my way or the highway. And this idea of no one comes to the Father except through me, we can kind of think of Jesus being like a bouncer where he's standing at the door. He's like, if you want to go to God, you've got to come through me. Just try me. And so all of this other stuff can then kick in where we feel like, oh, that means we've got to make sure that we measure up. We have to do enough. We have to be perfect because if we're not, then Jesus is going to bounce us away and we can't get through him. So that's one way of us being able to understand what he's saying here. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. But what Jesus is actually saying here is radically inclusive because as we look at the rest of Jesus' teaching, what we see him saying over and over again is there isn't enough that you could do ever to earn God's love and to earn God's favour. And that's not because God's really harsh and God's a judge that we could never meet the standards of, although in some ways that's kind of true. The reason why it's really true is because God's love and God's favour are given to us as a gift. And you can't do enough to earn a gift, ever. That's not what gifts are supposed to be about. So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the way and the truth and the life, because the only way to get to God is not to try harder, is not to think that you can earn your way into God's kingdom and God's family, The only way in is to accept the gift that I'm giving you freely, to accept what I've done in my death and my resurrection, and because of that, accept that you are welcome into God's family, which is radically inclusive because now it's not about meeting a set of standards and us being good enough. It's about us simply surrendering and saying, thank you, Jesus, that you have done that for every single one of us, and now we get to live in the freedom that comes from that. And then lastly, Jesus uses the imagery of the vine, which we looked at at the start of the year when we talked about what it means for us to be Jesus-centred. Jesus talks about how he wants us to stay connected to him, to receive nutrients from him, to grow fruit that comes from him, but also to stay connected to each other because all of us are connected to the one vine, 
which is Jesus himself. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, the true vine. These amazing pictures that help us to understand just how staggeringly incredible this one man Jesus is. For one person to be able to be all of those things and to do all of that for us is this beautiful picture that we see unpacked as we make our way through John. So as we wrap up today and get ready to transition into communion, I want to ask us this question that actually comes out of one of the verses early on in John. And the question is simply this, why do we read the Bible at all? What's the point in us taking time to read scripture, to read through books like John and the other books that are in the Bible? And the reason why this is an important question is because of what Jesus says to some religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says to them, you study the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. And these very scriptures speak about me, yet you're not willing to come to me in order to have life. Jesus challenges the religious leaders of his day who spent a lot of time reading scripture to be able to say, you read scripture because you hope that you can unpack the answers that enable you to experience eternal life. That's what you're searching for. And for a lot of us, that's our starting point when we read scripture. We're looking for answers, particularly we're looking for answers to the bigger questions of life. But Jesus ultimately says, the whole point of reading scripture is because it's all about me. When you read scripture, you discover who I am. But the goal is not just to learn some stuff. The goal, as he says, is to come to him in order to experience life. Towards the end of John, in John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus puts it this way. Eternal life means to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says the whole point of all of this is to know God and to know Jesus who was sent by God so that we can discover all of this. That's actually what eternal life is. Now, yes, when we pass from this life to the next, we get to experience that 100% of the time, and that's great. But it's so much richer than that because Jesus is saying, don't wait until then to experience what it means to have a meaningful connection with God and to understand who Jesus is and what he's done. You can experience that today in the here and now. So coming back to this question, why do we read the Bible? The Bible shows us the way to Jesus, helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John help us to understand who Jesus is, the core of his teaching and what he's done for us. And then the New Testament looks back at Jesus and says, how do we understand how to live on the basis of what Jesus has come to do? But the purpose of all of that is so that we can have a relationship with Jesus, to know him, to live with him, to live from him. And so as we read scripture, that's ultimately what our goal is. And that's the big challenge for us. It's not just to read scripture so that we can tick it off the list and say, yes, I did the tick box in my Lenten reading plan and so good for me, I've done that one. Or to say, I just want to learn some stuff. I'm hoping that I can just find some answers. That's important for us to search and to seek the answers that we've got. But ultimately, we need to take it a step further to say the whole point of doing all of that 
is so that we can develop our relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants our relationship to be about far more than just a set of theological understandings or answers to questions. He wants us to understand that the same love that the Father has for the Son is available to every single one of us today. We can experience that in a tangible way, not just as head knowledge, but in our very hearts, in the depths of our soul, to understand what it means to be loved by God. And then as we do that, what he wants us to do is take that love and to spread it around, to share that with each other and to share it with all of the people that we interact with. These verses that are so familiar to us are where I want to finish today, the verses that we read just before. John 3, 16 and 17. For God loved the world so much, so much, that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to be its judge but to be its saviour. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the amazing gift that the Bible is for us. For all of these books that weave together to tell the amazing story of your love for us and the way in which you've done everything necessary for us to have a full and complete relationship with you and to be a part of your family. We thank you for these amazing people who got to spend time with you, Jesus, and who wrote those events down, wrote your teaching down, so that we could be able to talk about them and focus on them 2,000 years later. It's a huge gift and a huge privilege that you have given us. But we know that following you is about so much more than just a belief system. It's not just about us reading a book so that we get a set of instructions about what we have to do. We thank you that all of Scripture reveals you to us, Jesus, as the living word, as our living hope, as the one who's here with us right here, right now, the one whom we can journey with day by day. And we thank you that your heart and your passion for us is to experience a relationship with you, not something that's just cognitive, not something that's just up in your minds, but something that's real and tangible, to be able to live out of that same love that you experience as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's incredible that you would open that up to us so that we can live that out and then give us the opportunity to be able to share that love with the people that we interact with, both the people who are a part of our spiritual family and the people that we interact with who are in the neighbourhoods and the communities around us. And so I pray that as we continue to move on the other side of Easter, that you would continue to encourage us and inspire us about just how amazing it is that Jesus, you came to show us what love looks like in human flesh, not just to give us a model to follow, although that's important, but to do everything necessary for us to live the way that we were created to live as a part of your family. In your name we pray. Amen.